Now, we have had many new people over the last couple of years, and there is a word that we use in our circles in a church like ours, and that word is covenant. And covenant can be quite mystifying as to exactly what we mean by that. What is a covenant? Who cares about a covenant? And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a series now. We're going to pause on Samuel. We need a a break after the David Bathsheba incident. (laughs) And we're going to demystify covenant. That's what we're going to do. And and man, does that sound boring, right? (laughs) Mike is now going to enter into a phase where it's the systematic theology sermons. I promise it's not going to be like that. Following last week in our poetic sermon, Uh, about poetics. What what I would like to do in this sermon, particularly to introduce the topic, is show forth why a covenant is like your pillow. Why a covenant, the covenant with God specifically, is like your pillow. And before we do that, let us pray to the living God. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for uh, the gathering of your saints. We thank you for the singing of your songs. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer for being here with us. We, we pray that as we open your word now, that you would give us insight and understanding, that you would uh, show forth your glorious mysteries, Lord, that, that you would help us by your spirit to understand them, to draw nearer to you, to see ourselves more clearly in the word of God, uh, Lord, and that we would also see you more clearly. We pray that you would give us uh, conviction and comfort in equal measure. We pray all these things in the name of your son and amen. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. I'll, I'll read it in a minute. That is the text that I'm going to be talking about today. But again, this is one of those sermons where I'm going to be going hither and yon. And so I will call out verses as we go. But the text I want to explain is Ephesians 2, 12. Now, Scripture is often portrayed as an unconnected mishmash of hero stories, when in fact the Lord has gloriously developed one message an interwoven and many-faceted outworking of a, of a promise, his central promise. Now, what, what happens is people try to categorize the data in the Bible. How do we understand all this biblical data that's there? How do, what does Genesis have to do with lamentations, has to do with Jonah, a priest, a lambs, you know, uh, worship, um, Jerusalem? What are all, what, how do we make all of this stuff in the Old Testament and in the New Testament make sense? And pe- people categorize it in different ways. People try to organize it by kingdom, they organize it by lordship, they organize it by love, they organize it by missions. But what I want to do is show that the the actual overriding principle, the framework, is covenant. If you understand covenant, you can understand any book in the Bible. And there is one interwoven, many-faceted outworking of of a central promise. That's what the scriptures are. God makes a promise, and then he goes forth, and he fulfills the promise. The promise is, I will be your God, and you will be my people, Exodus 6-7. This is what God wants. He wants to be your God, and he wants you to be his people. That's what he wants. And what are the scriptures about? His fulfilling that. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, if you turn to the last book of the Bible, we see that this phrase is repeated at the end of the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read from chapter 19 and chapter 21 here. This is what we read at the very end of the biblical story. And the angel said to me, write this, Beloved are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. 
Then in Revelation 21.3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We see in the end that the promise given in Exodus is fulfilled. He has made a people for himself, and he is their God. He invites his people to a wedding feast and declares that they will share union and communion with him for eternity. Now, the central promise is realized in a marriage covenant. That's what we're talking about. We are all of us headed to a wedding. We are going to get married. The people of God will be wed to the Lord for eternity. And we we used to understand that a marriage is a marriage covenant. We used to include that word. Now we just call it marriage. (laughs) But a marriage covenant is what a man and a woman do at their wedding. They, they stand together in front of witnesses and make promises to one another until death do us part, right, in good times and bad, richer or poor. And, and that for, is the picture of where we are all headed. That is what God wants. He wants a marriage covenant with us. But how is a marriage covenant between a man and woman in, in, in marriage like and not like a marriage covenant between God and his church? That's what we have to understand. How is it like it and how, how is it different? The Lexham Survey of Theology. See, look at that. Oof, man, what a title. They should work on titles. The Lexham Survey of Theology. This is what you get when you buy the uh, Logos Bible software. They just throw in this massive work. And, and what I find uh, is that name could use some work. But the definition is good. They define a covenant as a relationship God establishes with people on the basis of his promises. A relationship that God establishes with his people on the basis of promises. And when you hear that definition, you think of a wedding, don't you? A man and woman standing before witnesses, promising, making promises to one another, vows to one another that they will fulfill. Relationship, promises, that is what we're talking about when we talk about covenant. Now, theologian John Frame, he explains the nature of this relationship by placing the idea of covenant within his lordship Framework. If you don't know who John Frame is, he's a great theologian, one of the greatest living theologians. He wrote a multi-volume set called The Lordship Theology, and he organizes all the biblical data according to lordship. But this is what he had to say about covenant. Lordship is a covenantal concept. God brings his covenant servants into existence and exercises total control over them. As Lord, he sovereignly delivers them from bondage and wrecks the whole natural environment to accomplish his purposes for them. Authority is God's right to be obeyed, and since God has both control and authority, he embodies both might and right. Over and over, the covenant Lord stresses how his servant must obey his commands. To say that God's authority is absolute means that his commands may not be questioned, and that divine authority transcends all other loyalties, and that this authority extends to all areas of human life. Okay. Right? I know two things from that. There is a God, and I'm not him. Right? And he has absolute control over my life. That, that is very helpful. Lordship is very helpful. But I think in this definition there is something missing. Now, 16th century German theologian Zacharias Ursinus wrote this. What is your steadfast comfort in life and death? That in his infinite and immutable loving kindness... God has received me into his covenant of grace. Now, I don't think that you could go with this definition without John Frames. I think you need both, right? This is where it is different 
like and unlike an actual marriage. I, I am, <laughs> right, I'm the Lord of my home, uh, according to the apostles, but I do not rule over my home the same way that, God, that John Frame described God ruling over his covenant people. There's, there's a difference. But, but what I like here is this gets it a little closer to our human experience. The covenant that God has with us is, is a source of comfort. Now, when you hear the word covenant, do you think, oh, I'm so comforted. I, I'm, I'm thinking of what that word means, and I just, I'm so comforted in my heart. I'm at peace. I'm at rest. What we need to do is come to the point when we, when we talk about covenant that we are talking about comforting people. We're talking about coveting, uh, comforting our spouses. We're talking about comforting our children. We're talking about comforting the, um, the people in this world who need comfort. Comfort and loving kindness and grace. Yes, and lordship too. This helps us understand the idea not just of covenant, but a marriage covenant between God and man. It's one of authority, but also warmth. A relationship of deference, but also endearment. We return to the central promise that sums up all of God's promises to man. I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is the central work of God throughout history. The Lord began his work of union and communion by covenanting with Adam as our representative at creation. God placed Adam in the garden. He gave him the sacrament of a tree that he could eat, the sanction of a tree that he couldn't, and consequences for obedience and disobedience. It's a covenant that he made with Adam. God was Adam's, and Adam was God's. And you, and you go and you read there, what? They walked in the cool of the day together. Right? I imagine them eating pears, having a good time, having a laugh, having a joke, having warmth and endearment. There was no, no dispute as to who the Lord of that relationship was, but it was one also of endearment, closeness. They belonged to one another. But Hosea, chapter 6, verse 7, it says that Adam transgressed the covenant. He broke the covenant. He was no longer God's. He was Satan's. He said, now, I think I'm going to have a different Lord. And largely, what he wanted was to be his own Lord. He found a way out of this relationship with God. So the Lord, right in the beginning of Genesis, provides another covenant based on promise, a covenant for the fallen, a covenant of salvation, a covenant of redemption. Say, you know what? You, were, you did not want to be mine. You did not want to have me as yours. You went your own way. And so now what I'm going to do is make a new covenant, one that redeems you from this fallen state, one that heals you, one that brings you back. Now, beginning immediately after the fall, the Lord progressively unveils this gracious, redemptive covenant through his promise to fallen Adam, his preservation of the world for redemption with Noah, his promise of a people and a land to Abraham, and his promise of a throne and an eternal dwelling place in our midst to Moses and David and the prophets. And I think we typically think of the Old Testament as being full of a whole bunch of different covenants. But there are really various administrations of one covenant, a covenant of redemption, a covenant of promise to bring us back. Each new stage beautifully developed from and expanded upon a prior covenant like a golden chain of grace that will uh, be placed upon the neck of the bride of Christ at the end. Ultimately, this single, unified, and glorious redemptive covenant culminated in the work of Jesus Christ, the last Adam, our representative who restored the union and communion that the first Adam discarded. We will walk in the cool of the day with the Lord again, eating pears. And we will have fellowship. And that will go on forever. 
In all, God's covenantal work was the revelation and realization of the loss of union and communion with him, followed by the regaining of both in Christ, the Lord demonstrating his supreme glory and grace throughout. That, that's a summary of the redemptive covenant. So covenant, then, is not some buzzword. It's not merely a doctrine. It's a framework, a framework for understanding the entire Bible, one that organizes the biblical data of God's self-revelation. It shapes our relationship with God, and it gives us comfort. We are not our own, but what? We belong body and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are his, and he is, and he is ours. It's how we understand God's sovereign rule over and relationship with mankind. Now, through this series, we're going to look at how covenant shapes law and gospel, succession and families, and ultimately, worship. But today, what I want you to do is to see how the covenant is like your pillow. Now, covenant theology emerged in Reformed theology in the 16th century. This is why some people have a problem with it. You go back and you think, okay, well, let's look at a systematic that has the phrase covenant theology in it. And you can go back to the 16th century. And before that, you can't really. So some people are like, well, did they just invent this? But they didn't. They didn't. It's rooted in the Bible. It, and it's part, more a part of our tradition than most of us realize. God deals with humanity redemptively by covenants, from Noah to Abraham through Moses to the new covenant in Christ. Now, to begin to understand this, what I want to do is not think of a whole bunch of different covenants. There are just two. There are just two. And this reality it doesn't matter if it's in a systematic theology before the 16th century. It's found in the very title of our Bibles. Okay? If you take your Bible and you look at it, what is it? It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament is the same as covenant in both Hebrew and Greek. So you have on one side of your Bible the Old Covenant, and you have on the other side of your Bible the New Covenant. And if you're, if you're like me, the first thing I always do when I buy a new Bible is I go and, and I tear that page out in between. I've been doing that ever since I first became a Christian. It seems so bold. This is just one book, right? Take out this dividing wall here. But the way we categorize it is Old Testament, New Testament. And, and how you should think about that is Old Covenant, New Covenant. The Old Testament contains the Old Covenant. That is how Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 3.14. This is where we get our understanding of Old Covenant and New Covenant from the apostles themselves. 2 Corinthians 3.14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. In referring to the Old Testament, the books that they read, he calls it the Old Covenant. From earliest times, there was also a general agreement that the coming of Christ ushered in a new covenantal era. He says in Matthew twenty-six twenty-eight, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what he's doing by pouring out his blood is making a covenant. So Paul refers to the old covenant, and here Jesus is setting up a new covenant, and this is how we understand from the apostles the entire scriptural story. The idea of covenant isn't then imposed on two halves of the scripture by theologians. In the New Testament, co- covenant is given as a way of understanding. In the New Testament, it's given as a way of understanding both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole scriptures. The intricate covenantal chain runs unbroken through the Old and New Testaments, Old and New Covenants. Never think of that word testament the same again. There is a great deal of unity throughout these covenants. 
justifying the singular term covenant of redemption. A single covenant under several administrators, that's the part that confuses us. The, the covenant with Moses isn't different than the covenant that God made with Abraham. All it's done is he's expanded the same covenant and put a different person in charge of it. <laughs> and that's what you have over and over again until you get to Christ. The Jews read the Old Testament, which was veiled. Only Christ reveals its meaning. The Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ, not abolished, and its true meaning must be interpreted in that light. Jesus, in the Gospels, signifies the salvation that he is securing for man is his own blood, and it is covenantal. Within the covenant of redemption, there are different stages of development, okay? not different covenants. Noah's covenant reestablished the cultural mandate. It reestablished God's promise to Adam to save mankind from the grip of Satan. Noah's covenant preserved creation from further divine destruction and preserved humans from destroying one another so that the Lord could securely unfold his covenant work from then onward. If he kept destroying the earth like he did uh, with the flood, there wouldn't be anything left to save. So he says, all right, we'll preserve it then. We, we will keep it. I promise that I will not destroy it. What, what is he going to do with it then? Is he going to leave it as it is? No, he's going to redeem it. The promise to Noah was that he would leave the world so that he could save it. He would not destroy it again. And that gives us a great deal of comfort, right? Uh, we, all, we know that the seasons will remain. We know that man will remain. We know that it's not all right to be murdering one another. We have to let people live. Why? So that they can be redeemed. People, people and the world need to exist in order for God to save it. If we destroy either, there's nothing to save. Now later, Abraham's covenant was renewed with God's people under Moses, who also gave them the law to govern their life. Oh, I, I missed one. Sorry. Let me go back for a second. God expanded the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, rooting it not in law, but in justification by faith, sealed by the sign of circumcision. He says, listen, I am going to save the whole world, and I'm going to do it through you, and and this is by faith, not by works, and here is a sign, circumcision. So then later, Abraham's covenant was renewed with God's people under Moses, who also gave, he gave them the law to govern their lives as God's people. If you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, there's a few things we have to get straight. Don't do that. Right? If, if we're going to be his and he's going to be ours, we have to understand exactly what that requires of us. It doesn't make us in covenant with him. It helps us to live in covenant with him. Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29, called the law a nursemaid. She slaps your hand. Don't do that. Stop it. Sit up. That's not how you're supposed to conduct yourself. Stop running in the hallway. Your dad's in the office and he's working. That's what the law is. Right? It's not this terrible, horrible thing that we have to do away with. It's a sweet old nursemaid <laughs> helping us to grow up and be mature people who are, the God, uh, who are God's people. Now, this covenant that has been expanded through Noah and through Abraham and through Moses is then further renewed with David when he was promised not only a kingdom but also a household whose heirs would rule over it forever. Okay, so I'm going to save the world, and I'm going to do it through this, this guy Abraham's family, and then eventually I'm going to do it through this gentleman David and his heirs forever. And what I'm going to do is this world that I'm going to save is going to be a kingdom, and I will place upon it a king. Jesus came from the family of David, and all the covenants and their administrations find their fulfillment in him. Now, all of this that I've summarized is actually summarized by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. 
He summarizes everything that I've just said in, in this verse. Remember that you were at, the time, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. You don't have the covenant, and so you don't have God. He's not yours, and, you're, and, and you are not his. And there is a commonwealth. Why? Because of the covenant that he made with David. He's, he's, he's mentioning almost all of the covenants in this sentence, but he actually uses this phrase covenants, plural, of promise, singular. Covenants, plural, of promise, singular. Covenant theology maintains that God has organized redemptive history in terms of covenants, plural, of promise, singular. Promise is a gracious oath made by God to undeserving people. That is at the heart of covenant theology. Grace. You know, you know what, Adam? Given what you've just done, you know what I'm going to do? Is I'm going to promise to save you and everyone who descends from you. Okay, Noah, I'm going to destroy the whole world, but I'm going to choose you to build a boat to save some people. Okay, Abraham, I'm going to call you out from living with the pagans, and I'm going to send you on a mission now, and through you, look up at the stars and count them. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And, and on, so on and so forth. It's promise. It's grace. That's what is at the heart of covenant. Promise. In this promise, we go back to Genesis 3.15 to begin to understand the promise. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You were mine, and now you're not, but you will be mine again. I was yours, but now I'm not, but I will be yours again. Why? Because we will deal with the thing that's come between us, and that's Satan and sin and death. Now, God promised to restore us to himself from our willful self-imposed slavery to Satan. We're like, you know what's better than God? Satan. You know what's better than freedom? Slavery. You know what's better than goodness? Wickedness. And from that, we are saved. Not because we deserve it, not even because we want it, but because God is graciously giving it to us. He promises it to us. And that is what we are talking about when we talk about covenant. God clarified this promise by promising to preserve the earth, the seasons, and man, and all living things, so that they could be redeemed. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 to 22. Now, if you're worried about how hot it's been lately, or then how suddenly cold it is lately, and you're worried about the seasons and whether they're going to continue, just listen to these verses as a side note. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 through 22. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Genesis 9.11, I establish my covenant with you, he says to Noah, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And that fills us with comfort because it fills us with hope. Because when you first hear about what happened in Genesis, you think, well, the obvious thing would be then to just wipe the slate clean. But he says, I'm not going to do that. And you think, oh, well, if you're not going to do that, what are you going to do? Well, what I'm going to do is save you. 
What I'm going to do is save the trees and the fish and the birds and the mountains. I'm going to save it all. God promises that the earth and its inhabitants will abide. He will not merely wipe the slate clean. He will redeem it. Later, when establishing Abraham as the father of a new humanity, God swore his promise upon himself. This is something we're going to come back to, but let me just mention it here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. We'll continue with this next week when we talk about what it means to cut a covenant. But God swore upon himself to fulfill the requirements of our covenant with him. He looked at us and thought, you know what? I need to swear. I need them to understand. I I need them to, to hear this vow and this promise. And so I will swear on something. And what do you usually do when you swear upon something, right? In the vernacular um, um, that's commonly common in our culture, we say, well, I swear on my mother's grave I didn't do it. Right? You think of something that's immensely valuable. And you say, well, I, I swear on the Bible I didn't do it. Well, God says, you know, the only thing that's really worthy of establishing a promise is God. So God says, I promise upon myself to do this. So he's not going to destroy the earth. He, he promises to redeem it. And what is the most valuable thing that he, could, that he vowed, that he could vow upon? Himself. Our comfort is that the grace of God's promise to us has been given and established upon himself. And this comfort comes through faith, not law. In the New Testament, Paul affirms that those with faith inherit these promises that I am describing to you. The ones made to Abraham and to Noah, to Moses, they are yours if you believe. And and by believing, that's how he does it. That's what I love about it. Well, if I have faith in it, by having faith in it, that's how he accomplishes the very thing he's promised to do. It's not based on what you do or do not do. it's, It's based on faith. When people hear covenant, they hear law. And what I want you to hear is promise. I want you to hear comfort. I want you to lay upon it like you lay upon your pillow and rest. Galatians, chapter 3, verses 16 to 29, uh, abbreviated, abbreviated. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. God's promise to Abraham is an extension of his promise to Adam and Noah. All the families of the earth will be delivered from the great serpent, Satan. They will be blessed. That deliverance and blessing will come through Abraham's seed, who is Christ, in whom you live and move and have your being. Why? 
because you are his and he is yours. This promise of grace, this unmerited favor, is the basis of all five covenants. They are, all, they are covenants, plural, of a single promise given to mankind, salvation, preservation, life, union, and communion. The covenants are, made, are not made in watertight compartments. There is one promise, one covenant of redemption. As Calvin described it, the covenant is one in substance, differing in administration. Right? You, the bureaucratic, bureaucratic office of covenants, at one point Moses was sitting there behind the, the little glass that you went and saw, and then later it was David. Right? But the office is the same. The mission is the same. The purpose is the same. Through a single family, God offers this promise to the world. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 through 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, all the promises of God are confirmed in Jesus Christ, and through him affirmed by the church in the amen of her worship. Let me say that again. All the promises of God are confirmed in Jesus Christ, and through him, affirmed by the church in the amen of her worship. That is not very clear, but let me just read Paul's, ver- what he had to say in Second Corinthians chapter 1, and it'll make it clearer still. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The new covenant has been inaugurated upon the better promises prophesied by Jeremiah in in chapter 31 of his book, applied directly to Christ in Hebrews chapter 8, which was read for us today. Near the end of the Old Testament, the prophet said, listen, there's a better covenant coming, better promises, there's a, a, a better guarantee and it will not, that covenant will never be broken. That covenant will be established forever. And in and, and Hebrews, what they do, uh, what Paul does, is explain how that, that, that better covenant is the covenant that we have in Jesus, right? Who is holier than he is? Who is more faithful than he is? Who um, obeyed all the laws? Who is the one in, in whom we look to to fulfill all the requirements of all the other covenants? Who did it? I didn't do it. Did you do it? How did David do, right? We had to take a break from how bad he was doing. No one else fulfills these covenants. Nobody can. On Pentecost, the church was sealed into this better covenant by the descent and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The God with us, our Emmanuel, cleansed our hearts that by his spirit we might in- he might inhabit us forever, uniting us to himself forever. By the reception of the Holy Spirit, we know that we are not ours, but his, and that he is ours. The central promise summarizing the Old Covenant is the affirmation, I will be your God and you shall be my people, a promise of union and communion. The Holy Spirit is the seal and guarantee, the down payment, the earnest money of our inheritance of union and communion with God in Christ. In terms of its content, 
There is but one way of salvation, one means of redemption and consummation for humans in the cosmos. There's one way to get to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this is revealed, expressed, and administered throughout these covenants of promise. This grand covenant of redemption culminates in the new covenant in Christ, one of glory and intimacy, of provision, protection, and eternal life. This is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Covenants of promise. Covenants of promise. This is a framework to understand the whole Bible and therefore our relationship with the living God. Jesus defeats the great serpent, saving us from his clutches and dominion and terror. Jesus propitiates the wrath of God, hiding us in the ark of himself amid the flood of God's righteous judgment on the cross. Jesus is the father of a new people taken from all the tribes of the earth. Jesus is not only the priest of the Mosaic law, but also the sacrificial victim whom the priest offers up for the sins of the world. I love it. He's the priest and the lamb. He alone had the authority to slay the perfect lamb of God, and he himself was the perfect lamb of God. John 10, 17 to 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, said Jesus, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. He is the high priest. He is the lamb of sacrifice. It's him, him, him. All roads lead to Jesus. All promises are about Jesus. All the covenants are about Jesus. Covenant theology, then, is not a hobby horse. It's not the obsession of those in ivory-towered academia. It's not something that just Reformed guys like to geek out about. Covenant theology is the framework for understanding our relationship with the Savior, It's our comfort. Amid the difficulties and despair of this world, what comforts us? That we are not ours, but we belong, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his, and he is ours. The God of all comfort has mercifully condescended to save his people from their sins by means of a covenant. The gospel of Christ, the work of the Father, the promise of the Spirit of fire that we have received in our hearts. The glorious, central, and unifying promise of redemptive history, I will be your God and you will be my people, is the promise of union and communion with Christ forever. God's covenant is established by his promise, mediated by his perfect son, obligating his people to obedience, and is shown forth in the sacraments. As Hebrews 7 through 10 explains, the new covenant in Christ fulfills the preceding redemptive covenant of the Old Testament that pointed to Christ, the Son of God made flesh. In Christ, promise is fulfilled. In Christ, all requirements of God's covenant from our side are fulfilled. As Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the covenant, so Jesus instituted the supper with the words, this is my blood of the covenant. So every week, we feast on God's fulfilled promises in Christ. It is our meat and drink. That is why we are here, to eat the promises, to be restored by the promises, to, to look upon the covenant that he has fulfilled and that he has brought us into, to look upon him and know that we are his and that he is ours. 
This is how we understand all the doctrines of Christianity. Salvation is covenant salvation. Justification and adoption and regeneration and sanctification are all covenant mercies. Election was God's choice of future members of his covenant community, the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper corresponding to circumcision and the Passover are covenant ordinances. God's law is covenant law, and keeping it is the truest expression of gratitude for the covenant grace and the loyalty that we have received from him. Remember this word that we've been talking about? You said. Loyalty shown for loyalty received. That's what loving kindness is. That's what grace is. It obligates us. We have received it, and therefore we must put it forth in the world. We must respond with you said. We must show loyalty for the loyalty shown to us. An understanding of the covenants of promise guides us through and helps us to appreciate all the wonders of God's redeeming love, the history of his dealings with us, his ultimate purposes for us. It's a framework for understanding God's whole relationship with man and his self-revelation of the scriptures. So, to summarize, when we speak of the word covenant, when we speak it, what we're speaking is comfort. Covenant is comfort. Now, do you need to be comforted? Do you need comfort? <laughs> when we talk about systematic, uh, something like this from systematic theology, people get the wrong idea. But it's quite simple. Do you need comfort? Does your wife need comfort? Does your husband need comfort? Do your children need comfort? Does the world need comfort? If you do, then what you need is covenant. You need to understand it. You need to be able to explain it. You need to be able to be grateful for it. The answer is covenant because the covenant with Christ is the fulfilled promises of God to save the world. It is our relationship with him. It is our union and communion for eternity with him. The answer is covenant because the covenants of promise find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And all are able and welcome to the church's covenant with him, a covenant cut in his own blood, the wedding feast of the Lamb, because of him. He's done it. And so what we declare every week when we are here eating and drinking his body and blood is we are declaring this comfort to the world until he returns. If you need comfort, if you think the world needs comfort, then keep coming here for the next couple of weeks, and we will continue to explore covenant and what it is and, and, how, and, and the many aspects of comfort that it gives us. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of the apostles, Lord, to give us such deep understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament, how to understand your self-revelation, Lord, your relationship with us, your expectation of us. I pray that as we go from here that we would be comforted by the fulfilled promises in the Lord Jesus, that we would hold on to him, that we would rejoice in him, that we would look to him, that we, Lord God, would know that we are not our own, but that we are yours and that you are ours. And amen.